Good evening. <clears throat> you can see we changed positions for the evening service from our normal platform down there to the platform up here. Figured we'd go to the big pul- pulpit for our last sermon of the series of First Peter, Go Big or Go Home. So... <clears throat> But this is where I'm used to preaching from, and um, Robert and I just had a brief conversation. We both agreed, yes, indeed, and so here we are. <clears throat> but here we are in First Peter chapter 5, and we will finish our study this evening, um, reminding of us of where we were the last sermon, the first few verses, and then tonight we pick up in verse 5. I already read these verses. I remind you of the points. Um, As elders, we are to walk alongside the congregation, not walk over them. And so when you see that in the lives of elders, you want elders who walk alongside you, who shepherd over you, but who walk with you and do not walk all over you. Tending the flock, and then the scripture tells us to lead, not lord it over those allotted to our charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And then we looked at the receiving and rewarding when the chief shepherd appears. Now we have a bit of a a transition from the elders to the congregation. And we see specifically addressed to younger men, but also all of you, all of you in the congregation, all of you under the shepherding of elders, this is what you ought to do. There's several points for us this evening, and if I say this morning, it's out of habit. Here we are this evening. It's obviously dark outside, so I should say this evening, but you never know. But several points for us this evening, all beginning with the letter P, the first word is proper. First word is proper. And the first point is a proper attitude. A proper attitude. And these are only possible with having a changed heart. These are only possible by being born again. These are only possible if one is um, following Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for the Lord's help one more time. Oh Lord, I pray that you would indeed... Give me unction from on high. Give me the ability to understand your word. Give me the ability to clearly articulate your word and to preach it for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. So the younger are to be subject to those who are older or to those who are elder. This, again, commentators and theologians go back and forth. This could refer to age not necessarily to the office of elder, as some commentators suggest, but I'll tell you why I disagree with that in a moment. But the younger, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. The younger submitting to the older, if we consider that for a moment. Younger are to submit to those who are older as a general rule of thumb. We understand that that's not always the case. I am younger than many of you in the congregation, and you still submit to me as one of your elders, 
even though I'm not, uh, even though I am younger than you. But younger people are to respect those who have the crown of glory of gray hair, which I don't have. Not yet. I will. And it has started. But they say they have ways of slowing that down, too. (laughs) Proverbs 16 and verse 31, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Now, we had a conversation, several of us, this afternoon, and we were talking about spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, and we were talking about where I'm going to go next after 1 Peter, and in joking, we were saying, oh, we should go here, go there, uh, somewhat in seriousness and somewhat in joking, and I I thought about that, and I said, no one's going to tell me where I'm going next in a text other than God. Um, It's not to take suggestions and not to take suggestions from um, those young in the faith to say, this is where you need to go next and teach, teach uh, the Word of God. No way, no how should a pastor do that. It should be over laborious prayer, God, what would you have me teach the people next, for this is what they need to hear. I think we need to be reminded as well of how much of a warfare this is to stand behind this pulpit and to open up God's word and to proclaim it. It is no picnic. I jest at times, but it is not fun. But it is a privilege. But there is sweat, tears, labor, agony at times to go through this and it is God what do you want me to have for the people and help me in my weak estate to try to bring this to the congregation I indeed have to have the proper attitude as the first point is this morning and all of us must have the proper attitude as we would submit to those who are older than us as a general rule We need to see more of that in the church in general. However, this is not what this verse is referring to specifically, I do not think. Peter uses the same word here as he uses in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Verse 1. In verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. The NIV says, if young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. But if we go back to the word in Greek and how it is used in the context, that elders here in verse 5 means elders. So elder men or, uh, or elders, older men is possible, but not likely. And I'll explain a little further. Here's what Tom Schreiner says. It is possible that younger refers to the entire congregation. Instead of you younger men, younger for the congregation, which is in contrast to the elders. If this interpretation is correct, he says, the term younger is used because generally speaking, the remaining believers are younger in contrast to the elders. 
the designation younger is a suitable former counterpart to elders. A decision is difficult, but we probably should understand Peter to refer to those who are literally younger, perhaps younger people, would be more apt to act rebelliously. The younger in particular then should submit to the leadership of the elders. We have seen uh, elsewhere that Peter understood submission as a responsibility of believers to those in positions of authority. The purpose is not to encourage obedience no matter what leaders may say. For if leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, then they should not be followed. Nor is the verse suggesting that leaders are exempt from accountability before the congregation. And that's why we have what we have with the Constitution. We have already, like, checks and balances. We have already observed that elders are admonished not to use their authority as dictatorial rulers, but are to serve those under their charge. Conversely, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiative of leaders and complaining about the directions of the church. We're prone to complain about things, are we not? Prone to complain. But younger adults, specifically in a congregation, especially should be listening to and showing a respect to the elders of this church and towards saints that are older than them in general as a proper attitude that we do not see in the world. We should see it in the church because of a changed heart. Secondly, there is the proper attire, the proper attire. Now, I'm not speaking of literal clothing here because the text is not speaking of literal clothing here. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This word is a rare word. Maybe because it's a rare thing, I don't know, for humility. But refers to a slave putting on an apron, such as he would do before serving in some capacity. Now think of Peter when he was younger, when he was with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Lord Jesus did, and what might be in Peter's mind as he penned this out, or as he dictated this, John 13, verse 4, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Remember what Peter said? He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do to you, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And he was speaking, of course, of Judas. So perhaps this is what Peter had in mind here when he saw Jesus do this for him and for the disciples as showing this servant leadership. 
and all of you clothe yourselves with humility, this proper attire that we should have. A proper attitude, a proper attire, being clothed with humility. As Proverbs 3.34 says, Though he, he being God, scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And we remember that James picks up on this um, as well. And I'd invite you to please turn there. Please take the invitation to turn there. James chapter 4. As he picks up on this, and then I'm going to jump back to John 21, but you don't have to go to John 21 with me. But we need to see James once again. Because this says pretty much the same thing. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And verse 10 as well, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we have Peter speaking of humility that we are to have because God is opposed to the proud. And then we have James saying the similar thing. And then we have Peter learning humility, if you remember, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ in John chapter 21. I'll just read this for you, verse 15 through 17. Remember when the disciples saw Jesus, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter learned Humility. Sometimes we learn humility in hard ways, do we not? We are to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another, giving preference to one another, being slow to to speak in anger towards one another. Don't we have a choice to make when we are in some kind of in-depth conversation or in an intense fellowship? with another Christian and we have an opportunity there to either bite our tongue or destroy them with our words. We can either be clothed with humility or have that uh, opportunity there to be proud in heart and say, well, I'm just going to destroy here with things I know are going to hurt. These verbs, clothe yourselves, present tense, So there is a a timeless aspect to it. Continually clothe yourselves to, clothe yourselves, excuse me, in humility. And God is continually opposed to the proud. Continually. 
So we're to have the proper attitude, we have the proper attire, being clothed in humility by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, thirdly, we have the proper posture. Have the proper posture. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Again, as we were discussing things earlier, we were having a study. Um, someone said when people were um, came in the presence of God, they didn't just, oh, this is fine and dandy. They fell on their face. They were uh, laid out in the presence of God. When they had this manifestation of God, it affected them in a, in a tremendous way. They could not look. They laid down flat. And God was, they were in the presence of Almighty God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. The mighty hand of God is used in the Old Testament for the uh, discipline or to take action such as in Exodus. I will, Exodus 3, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt, says the Lord, but also used for the deliverance of his people as he brought them out out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand just as he brought us out of our sinful past and our sinful dead state with his mighty hand so that therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that for this reason God may exalt you This as well goes back to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll make one reference, no need to turn there, and it's from Luke 14 and verse 11. Luke 14 and verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this was the parable of the guests, When Jesus began speaking to the invited guests, he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both may come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has been invited comes... Invited you, invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I saw a recent brief video of a Q&A session. Didn't even watch the Q&A session, but this just popped in my mind now. Several well-known preachers, well-known men, uh, there's probably about eight of them at a conference. One of them was locked up for... Uh, keeping the church open in Canada. The rest of the men were there, well-known seasoned preachers. And one preacher came out late, and the younger guy there saw him coming. What did he do? And there was not enough chairs. He got up out of his seat. and got up and gave the chair to this saint who's been walking with the Lord for many, many years. It wasn't even a question. Here's this young guy, first time at this conference. He sees this well-known preacher comes. He's a well-respected man. He just gets up and says, here you go. Not enough seats. Humbling oneself, not looking for exaltation. There's a lot of that online, you know. If we go and we 
you look at some of us who go to theological forums and such, and you could just, there's some that are on there that are jump at you just by saying hello. They say, oh, hello, how are you? Oh, you can't say that. And they just go and go and go and just jump on you. Exalting or seeking, it seems, to exalt self. Well, when does this exaltation take place? If we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time? Well, in some ways it takes place in this life. In some ways it does. And who does God use most of the time? He uses the runt of the litter. He uses those that he presses through in trial and tribulation, those who are on their face before him that he crushes in many ways and who have, can't even, even attempt to exalt themselves. In some ways, it takes place in this life when the Lord lifts one up who he has humbled, who has humbled himself or herself before him. But the main focus here is an eschatological one. Lifted up by the mighty hand of God, exalted ultimately in the glorified state, glorified with Christ at the day of his appearing. So we have here a proper attire, excuse me, proper attitude that we are to have proper attire, clothed in his righteousness, clothed in humility, a proper posture, humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And we are to take proper action, proper action. Verse 7, casting all anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's the proper action. The verb means to throw upon. So there is an action we must take, a divisive action we must take. Humble yourselves so that you can cast your care upon the Lord. Our cares are His cares. Why would we not cast our anxieties upon Him? That doesn't mean automatically we're not going to be anxious anymore, but it means we're to cast our cares upon him. You know, sometimes when we're there and we're just dwelling on things and dwelling on things, we're not praying about them. At least we can pray about them, then go back to dwelling, but at least we're casting them before the Lord, casting them on the Lord. As Matthew 6, 25, I'll just read this for you as well. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And indeed we are to him. And you... Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. If we look at the teachings of Paul in 2 Corinthians, we're not to turn there, verse 11 and 20, or chapter 11, verse 28. Paul admits his anxiety. 
Listen to Daniel Doriani's take on this. He lists his troubles as an apostle. The beatings and jailing, the hunger, the thirst, the cold, and the shipwreck. And then concludes, And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Look what Paul, Paul went through, right? The beatings, jails, hunger, thirst, cold, shipwreck. And then says, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul has this anxiety, whatever this is, and apparently sees it as a problem and not necessarily a sin for him in this point. So it was possible for him to be, have this anxiety for these churches, yet not let it be carried on into worry into a point of sin, addressed properly. Not pan- in other words, not panicking or trying to solve the problem on our own. Not given into worry, because given into worry is an example of pride. Why? Because we want to be in control, don't we? You know the phrase control freaks, right? They actually had a uh, uh, hair gel called control freak. I don't use it, but I've seen it. Must be really get your hair stiff. Popped in my mind just now. But so, un- so we take action. We do what we can to solve things. Not being paralyzed, but more importantly, cast all of our anxiety on him. Why would we do that? Because he cares for us. That's why. He cares for you. He is not indifferent to your sufferings. Not at all. So cast your cares upon the Lord or continue to dwell on your cares and cave into pride. Those are the really the options. Listen to Schreiner once again. Tom Schreiner once again. He says, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God that they trust is in themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in his mighty hand, acknowledging that he is Lord and sovereign over all of life. As Goplet says, Affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. Isn't that indeed the case? Affliction either drives us into the arms of God or severs us from God. It's like, where do we go? What are we going to do? Remember this audience was under affliction and distress, some persecution. Casting care upon the Lord made perfect sense. Whereas in an affluent society with many different devices we may have and many different distractions we may have and hard to get into solitude and silence, which we were talking about earlier as well, because this was a noisy society in many ways. It's easier for us in many ways to rely on other things than God. Casting our cares upon the Lord, though, should make perfect sense to us. And as a side note, t- telling ones who we, uh, who we trust, 
Because why tell it to others if they do not care or if they're going to be uh, apathetic towards it? A brother came to me recently and he, he said to me, I have something I want you to pray about and I know you won't say anything to anyone about this. And it was nothing negative, bad, anything like that. But that's what we should have. That's what we should be able to say. That there are those we can say, I want you to pray for me on this and that it won't go down the lines of everyone knows now. Because we know that they care for us. But how much more does Christ care for us? We don't share our concerns and our cares with those who respond with hurtful remarks or indifference or mockery or really showing a lack of care and concern for us. Our Lord is not like that. He has compassion on us. As Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. This casting is like throwing a saddle on a horse. If you've ever done a thrown a saddle on the horse, I haven't. I've been on a horse a couple of times. Last time the horse took off running when I was a kid and I almost fell off. He would not stop no matter what. And he was going full speed. He must have been a racehorse. That was my last time. It wasn't my first time, but it was my last time, I think. But it's like throwing a saddle on a horse or throwing a cast net into the water. I used to have a cast net. Anything above a six-foot cast net, impossible to throw unless you have some kind of clinic on it. But a four, five-foot cast net you could cast, you heave it into the water. Throw your cares, your specific cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. So we'd have the proper attitude, proper attire, proper posture, proper action, and then have proper responses, proper responses. Verse 8 and 9 go together. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Proper responses. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Resist him. Our Lord takes such great interest in us. Think about that. Christ takes care. He cares about us. He takes interest in us. Guess who also has an interest in us? Satan has an interest in the people of God bringing us down behind all the evil in this world and behind uh, all of the enemies of, of Christ, egging them on as it were. What is our responsibility then here? To be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Resist him and knowing things. Be sober. This is an imperative. It's a command. We saw this first 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So we see that there, and then we find it here. To be of sober spirit, to be on the alert. We see this also in Paul's writings. The command to be sober is in the context of the absolute need to be vigilant because the Lord is returning. Because time is running out. As another someone mentioned today too, that we should have this, we should have an urgency about us. We do not know when our last day will be. We do not know when the, uh, the lost person's last day will be. Life is but a vapor. We ought to be on an, have an urgency about our lives and to be on the alert, be watchful. This is also used in the context of ex- eschatology. Be watchful for the return of the Lord. And this again goes back to the beginning of the letter of 1 Peter. There was a time... If we remember in the Gospels, where Peter was not watchful. And so perhaps that is in his mind as well. Because there was a time when he was told to be watchful, and he was not. It's in Matthew 26. I'll read it for you. I'm in 27, 26, 36. This is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, Lord willing, we will get into uh, what this looked like and how the Lord was falling down over and over again and the agony of how that appeared from those who could see him as he was deeply grieved to the point of death and he was telling them to keep watch. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not watch with me for an hour. Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold. The one who betrays me is at hand. Peter should have been watching, 
but he wasn't. He was sleeping on his watch. And we recall, as Jesus said to Peter, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And we see here in 1 Peter, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Picture that in your sanctified imagination. The devil walking around like a lion on the prowl. A lion roars loudly. It's like a jet roar. If a lion was in the room and he roared, it would hurt our ears. We would have to cover our ears. A lion roars so loud and it it pounces on its prey. It intimidates others. Invokes fear and gives the opportunity Given the opportunity, a lion will tear its prey apart limb from limb. Most of us here have seen the um, animal shows or whatnot where the lion will go after the whatever animal it is and take them down. Eating its victim alive or going right for the throat for the quick kill. Now, that is how our enemy is. Listen to Daniel Doriani here. Satan operates by tempting or enticing people to sin. One classic case is Satan's attempt to persuade Jesus to use his powers selfishly. After Jesus fasted 40 days, he was hungry, and Satan invited him to turn nearby stones into bread, Matthew 4. We can imagine his words. You're hungry, aren't you? You have the power, so why not? What's the harm? Who gets hurt? We guess it at these lines because we have heard them ourselves. Why not? Take what's yours. You deserve it. No one will suffer. No one will know. And Satan has additional tactics. He incites idolatry, the worship of anything but the one true God. He also tempts us to doubt our standing with God. He confuses or blinds people so that they cannot see the truth. Today it seems that he has blinded Western societies ethically, Notice how we talk about ethics. People are no longer evil or perverse. They adopt alternative lifestyles. Deeds are no longer right or wrong. They are appropriate or inappropriate. That implies that wicked acts are nothing worse than breaches of etiquette. End quote. No, we are to be sober, be on the alert, and not lulled to sleep. Proper attitude, proper attire, proper posture, proper action, proper response, and sixthly, our proper defense, proper defense. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Resistance is not submitting to. It is not running from It is active engagement against an enemy. We remind ourselves and remind yourselves as far as your homework for this week of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And how is that accomplished? And what goes into that? 
as we resist the evil one and stand and remain firm in our faith like our feet are in concrete. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. There are other believers that are sharing in the same affliction as they were, just as we know when we go through affliction, there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through similar things as we are. And isn't it amazing, just as a side note, in the providence of God, that God often puts people in our lives that have gone through similar afflictions in the past as, as we have? or who are going through it now and we have gone through that and we're able to minister to them. But we're to have the proper defense. And seventh, we're to have the proper perspective. Proper perspective. Verse 10 and 11 go together. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you with the effectual call, called you irresistibly, called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, this is what he will do. He will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and he will establish you. This is what the Lord will, he himself, do. He will perfect you. I know that's hard for us to believe at times. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you and establish you. And then we have the doxology in verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then we have verse 12 through 14, which is the postscript. And this all really goes together in one section too. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Most agree that this is Silas, Paul's companion in Acts chapter 15. He either wrote as Peter dictated the letter, which was common, or he simply was one who carried this letter. But he is our faithful brother, as Peter says, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And here he says this once again, stand firm in it. Stand firm in what? Stand firm in the grace of God. We are, in verse 9, we're to resist him firm in our faith. And here he says, Stand firm in the grace of God. We need to be reminded of that, that we stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We don't add anything to our salvation. Uh, Nothing will change the fact that God has saved us. We are to stand firm in his grace. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Now, she here... Uh, various, well, a few different options, so to speak, from theologians of who this may be. Some say Peter's wife. 
most say, makes most sense, is she being the church. Babylon, cryptic for Rome because of persecution. And Peter saying, my son Mark, not his biological son, but his, as we would say, son in the faith. Son in the faith. Mark being John Mark, we see in Acts chapter 12 and 13, his son in the faith, and the one who wrote the gospel of Mark, who was with Peter, close with Peter. And he says in verse 14, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this is what they did in this cultural context. Right? Different cultures do different ways of greeting differently, right? Kiss on the cheek, both cheeks. We don't do that here necessarily. Um, Cultural context, this is what they did. Common form of greeting, showing unity. What do we do? We shake hands, we hug. Some of us men give the bro hug, half one handshake, half hug, depending on how close we are with each other. Sometimes it's full hug, right? But we have different ways, but we greet one another showing this unity. It's interesting how sometimes... You go to different people's houses for dinner and some people pray differently, right? They pray around the table, some hold hands, some don't. Some put their hands like this, some don't. If I wash my hands after holding your hands in prayer, don't be offended, just so I can eat. I usually eat with washed hands, but nevertheless. (laughs) Greet one another with affection, with a handshake, with a hug, with Um, letting them know that you care about them, showing unity there. And Peter closes with this benediction. Peace be to you who are in Christ. And we would say, what is the contrast of that? Turmoil, tribulation, uh, unsteadiness be to all who are not in Christ. This peace is only to those who are in Christ. So, we are to have the, because we have a changed heart, we are to have the proper attitude, have the proper attire, being clothed with humility, have the proper posture, uh, submitting ourselves to the mighty hand of God, take the proper action as Peter exhorts us to, have the proper defenses, the armor of God and standing firm and being on the alert and have the proper perspective as well. Well, it has been a long road in 1 Peter. I don't know how long it's been, but for those of you who have been here since day one of this study, hopefully we have been, and for those who haven't, for those who've just been here, Hopefully we've been encouraged and uh, we've grown and we've gone through this book together. We could have taken more time in some areas. This could have been done better in some areas. No doubt about that. But I do ask your prayers as we say, where do we go next? What do we need to hear next from the Lord? Um, We've gone through Jonah together. I think that was Sunday evening. Um, 
And so here we went to 1 Peter, and we'll see what the Lord would have us do next. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this privilege you have given us of being called children of God, being called to serve you, being called to, as you loved us, and we love you, and being called to love others, being called to submit to the authorities that you have put in place, being called to serve um, lovingly, to help one another, to be hospitable to one another, to care for one another. Lord, help us to to reach out to one another um, and to pray for one another and to be careful to not forsake the assembly with one another as we see the day drawing near. Lord, whatever your desire is for us or whatever your will is for us in our next study, that you would indeed uh, confirm it unequivocally, God, and that you would um, encourage us once again from your word. We thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.